Hello and welcome to this, the 31st episode in the second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And this week I am not coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar because I am coming to you live from my hotel room just off Broadway here in New York City as you may be able to tell from the slight difference in sound quality but as ever this second series is brought to you thanks to the generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland and it is because of that support that each week we bring you these conversations absolutely free of charge we have promised you that we won't ever charge for this podcast but as ever we are looking for you to go and put your money into Irish theatre the whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote and celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre and the simplest way for you to do that is to just go and buy yourself some tickets. I've been buying a lot of theatre tickets recently, all for them here in New York, so that's not doing a huge amount for Irish theatre but you get the idea. But you know what, if tickets are slightly outside your reach this week or this month, go on over to one of the crowdsourcing websites the likes of a fundit.ie or an Indiegogo, see if there's a theatre campaign over there looking for your support I know at the moment that over on Indiegogo, the great Fanula Gigax has has a campaign over there. She has just launched her own theatre company with Danny Galligan and Venetia Bow. They are called The Chaos Factory and that is one I shall be supporting myself. So do go and check that out if you get a minute to, please. But of course there are plenty of ways you can support without even having to put your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about this podcast, whether that's in person over a cup of coffee or over a pint or sitting in a departure lounge at Dublin Airport on your way to fly over to New York to see Adina Manzel. Uh, Of course you can share the link as a Facebook post or you can retweet the link on Twitter. Do please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. That's a big one for us. If you haven't subscribed on iTunes yet, do please go and do that. But of course, for those of you not using Apple, these episodes are all streamable and available for direct download over at riseproductions.ie. Do go back and listen to all our other episodes, both in this second series and the original series from a few years ago. That does a great deal to help us in terms of chart position. And if you would, please, please, please go and leave us a review on iTunes or simply click to rate us on their five-star rating system. It takes a second out of your day, but does a huge amount to help us. If you've been promising yourself you're going to do it one day, when I keep on rabbiting on about it, please make today that day. Run on over, give yourself two minutes over on iTunes, click to rate us, maybe a quick review. It's a huge help for all of us. As ever, you can follow us on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland, or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland. And so, yeah, I'm on my adventures this week. I am over in NYC having a little bit of a break after the tour of The Good Father. It was 13 long weeks on the road. Uh, a wonderful show, wonderful production to be part of, but I was very much in need of a break afterwards. And so my break involved flying over to Manhattan and going to see absolutely as much theatre as I possibly can, uh, including trying to marry Adina Menzel, my real-life girlfriend. Um, it's uh, Adina's back off-Broadway at the roundabout in a play called Skin Tight and I went to see it last night and she is just phenomenal. It's the third time I've seen her live but it's the first time I've ever seen her in a straight play, um, not performing, not singing basically and uh, she is an exceptional actress. I like, you know, okay, obviously she's my hero, she's my favourite, whatever else but just to watch her skill 
on stage, uh, particularly kind of stripped back like this and in quite an intimate space. Uh, the show's fantastic, really, really insightful writing, uh, beautiful, exquisite design, great performances across the board. Uh, and even with all that, she is absolutely stealing the show. It's, uh, a, it's a phenomenal show. And so phenomenal is it that I'm actually going to go back and see it a second time. And if I can squeeze it in before Sunday when I fly out, possibly even a third. Uh, yeah, I'm not big a theatre nerd. It is what it is. I've flown 3,000 miles to see our worker magic and it was absolutely worth it. Also, I to go see Frozen the other night, which is really interesting. As a guy who's obviously a big fan of the movie originally and a big fan of Adina, as I may have mentioned, uh, and that I have now two small daughters in the house, we have a lot of Frozen at our house. Um, and the stage version is kind of weird um look it hands down it is worth the ticket price alone just for the let it go moment and the transformation into the ice queen it's like spectacular theater but the show itself is a weird mashup it kind of feels like it's embracing some newer technologies and kind of video mapping projection all that kind of stuff but it also feels really really traditional um the whole aesthetic of it the design the choreography particularly feels really traditional kind of conservative i'd nearly say um two great performances from uh the two central uh, actresses uh, and brilliant performances from the kids as well playing young Anna and Elsa um, but an odd night at the theatre like a weird a weird mashup of styles that kind of doesn't feel uh, like a conscious you know slamming together of two aesthetics it just kind of feels like it's a bit weird and doesn't really fit but it's a lovely night out at the theatre I had a great time I'm a big Frozen fan what are you going to do um, so look there's also something we've got to touch on this week um, which is breaking my heart Um we lost Stephen Swift this week, and Swifty is just, without question, one of the very best guys in the business, one of the very best guys you could ever hope to have in a company with you. Um, I first met Swifty on the nose 10 years ago with Performance Corporation, and obviously Swifty did a huge amount with Performance Corporation, um, and I just instantly fell in love with the guy as the coolest, most handsome, funniest guy you could ever wish to meet um i adored him and everything he did his rendition of kind of a david copperfield-esque illusionist just that he would do for like to entertain me in rehearsals is still one of the most hilarious things i've ever seen in my life and i would make him do it like a dancing monkey every time we met since i'd go do the magician do the magician and he would do it for me because he loved me and it made me so happy but i have so many happy memories with swifty over the years like just simple things like working a moonwalk into that show the nose we could literally just moonwalk on stage and have the absolute crack um just a wonderful person to be with and we like we also worked on uh, major barber together at the and it feels weird to me that we only worked together twice because it feels like we would work together an awful lot more over the years. I guess that's just kind of the effect that Swifty had on people that you felt maybe that you were a much closer friend to him than maybe you actually were. He was just so generous of spirit and uh, and so loving actually and so generous and so brilliant. Um, I adore him and we had this fantastic tradition of swapping Christmas albums every year. Kind of like a, We used to make each other mixtapes of Christmas songs because we both love Christmas so much um, and I'm kind of proud of the fact that he used to send me really kind of highbrow uh, 50s crooner stuff and kind of more out there stuff that I would never uh, got my hands on and i just send him Edina and Samantha Mumba um, because that's the level of cultural you know, at whatever I'm at um, and it just breaks my my heart that he's gone um he will be sorely missed uh primarily by his family uh and his kids but also by the industry uh and the theater community generally um uh, he's just one of those guys that you can't replace um 
I loved him so much. He was a superstar and uh, we'll miss you, Swifty. So, uh, look, that brings us to our guest this week, and it is none other than the phenomenal Julie Kelleher, uh, who is cooking up a storm down in Cork, it has to be said. The Everyman under Julie's stewardship has become the number one place that I like to book for tours uh, with Rise at the moment because the level of support that comes from there is phenomenal, but also the calibre of work that's being made there uh, and Julie's commitment to keeping excellent theatre in Cork uh, is second to none. I love what she's doing there. I love her as a person. Uh, It's an interesting route through the business. Let's get straight to it. Here she is. The brilliant Julie Kelleher. The wonderful Julie Kelleher joining us on the podcast. How the hell are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I am deadly, thanks, because I'm back down in Cork and it makes me so happy back at the Everyman. It's one of my favourite places and in the country. And the sun is shining. Yes, so. which always helps. Um, let us start, as we do every week, and get back to the very beginning. When did the first inclination of uh, an interest in theatre or career in theatre happen for you? God, well, interest seems to, I think, for me, be there since forever my mum used to let me stay up late nights and my dad was working shift you know to like like to watch things like musicals or you know if the, like the royal variety show was on and so like people would tap dancing my, my mum would always be like come and look at this you know and so I like you know <laughs> the height of human achievement yeah, tap dancing tap dancing I, which I still find completely brilliant and I did go to a tap class for a bit um and there was a, that was my first taste of disappointment actually we something happened the group that we were in were supposed to perform as part of panto in the opera house and i can't remember exactly what happened but i mean i don't know i probably wasn't privy to it but anyway we didn't our number which was like the teddy bear's picnic didn't get to be in the show which was you know heartbreak devastating devastating but i suppose over time like you know we would have had a like things in school and that kind of stuff. I also had a lisp, so my mother felt it was important to send me for elocution. Of course. Um, because Cork people talk like this, like with their, you know, like with their mouth kind of narrow. So I, I learned to round out my vowels and things like that. But I sort of didn't like it, you know, and I didn't like going to speech and drama classes because even though, like, I was a good student um, in school and in speech and drama class, but I just thought this is like anathema yeah. to be, you know, getting marks for this seems yes. cracked, you know. Um, and then strangely, I went on to do a degree in that. But, you know, where they if that's, of course, exactly what they you, they do. But um, I suppose it, it really sort of went up a notch for me in second level. I, I started attending um, a local drama school here in Turner's Cross run by um, Marion Wyatt um, and just met a real like brilliant band like motley crew i mean in effect it was had it was very youth theatery in in vibe um you know just a real band of misfits like and we were great pals um and still are many of us to this day you know and i think it became really clear to me that as i was coming towards dao and leaving cert and all those kinds of things that um if there was a way to do that in college that that would make so much sense because um, you know I've kind of quite a racing mind and like you know like a bit anxious mind really sometimes but I find um, theatre and the play of theatre so entirely occupying both body and mind that that seemed to me to be a really wise thing to do because you know it meant I could if, if I could be occupied in that way for three years of college then that would make loads of sense and that kind of coincided with um UCC first making a drama and theatre studies degree available so it meant I was able to do it at home. See, and that's an interesting off. question for me because at that time given the route that you've taken through the business at that time are you thinking you want to be a performer you want to be an academic you want to be behind the scenes and also the decision to 
to stay in Cork versus Dublin or London or Wales or whatever. What was going on in your mind at that time? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think I did apply for Trinity at the time. I, I, and you know, you had to kind of fill out a form for both and do a kind of an audition process. And I remember being really intimidated actually by the Trinity process and going, you know, like for some, I, I couldn't even point now to what made what made me feel like that, but I did. Um, And I think in the end, you know, I'm actually quite a bit of a homebird, and um, you know, it, it made sense to me to do that. But in terms of what I aspired to do, so when I when I went to the audition for for Cork, they asked me they asked me um, what was the best thing I had ever sort of like seen to date. Sure. And I told them all about my trip to see Phantom of the Opera in the point. Amazing. And I think the interviewers were a little horrified at my, you know, my big commercial shiny um, <laughs> show being like the best thing I've ever seen. Because God forbid um, someone might pay money indeed, to go and see your show. Indeed, indeed. So, um, and they wanted to know then was I, had I aspirations to be an actor? Mostly because, you know, they wanted to clarify, I guess, that this wasn't a conservatory training course sure. for, for, for performance. Um, and I sort of, whatever, took the cue from their... <laughs> tone and went oh god no I mean absolutely not type thing um and I I mean at that point I I really had no specific aspiration sure I just knew that if I did this for three years I I would find it entirely occupying and I couldn't think of anything better to be sort of doing and I went on you know and did you know um like acting with dramat and various other things and I had decided by the end of it that I wanted maybe to give that a go because you know um, I'd done that and enjoyed that and things. Did the three years live up to what you expected it to do? Did it give you that sense of being fully occupied and fully invested in it? And it did, I think, to the extent that you know it was a joint honours degree, so we were also at you know at the other half of the degree was English. Um, to the so to the extent that like sort of English was really the poor relation, you know, we didn't you know beyond like a basic attendance of class, every everything else was poured into. Um, that side of the degree because you know like we would have had kind of like theoretical elements but quite significant practical elements and of course they become kind of entirely occupying yeah. and you know um, just, we were making things you know um, and making things together and it, it I mean I don't know what I thought I think even when I went into the the audition process you know and the kind of like being exposed to um, you know a like a range of contemporary performance from like kind of live art and performance art and contemporary dance that I had like really no reference for at all um you know so it's like a kid in a sweet shop like yeah. you know it was kind of incredible um yeah so it, it I don't know that it, my expectations of, of of being occupied certainly and then beyond that I didn't know I don't know what else I I expected but like you know I had an amazing time there for sure and did you like the you know so the girl who had loved Phantom uh, at the point to then go and, and encounter this as a performance art territory like was that did you go oh my god I, I, this is fantastic that this world exists too you nah, I still like my commercial musicals yeah well, I, I and I still feel that and I, I feel that really keenly actually um you know and so that's an interesting sort of you know I think that's an interesting seat to to be in like I love a big shiny show like with like loads of lights and all the dancers and like I love the scale of it and I love the spectacle of it and I love like the the sheer size kind of enveloping you but similarly like 
I find it utterly captivating to watch a piece of um, contemporary dance that's m- like tiny in scale or, you know, where it's one performer. Do You know, like if you look at someone like Una Doherty, like, yeah, I mean, course. like basically that's one of the best shows I've seen in like five years. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it like blew my head off, you know? Um, and I think it's there's something about the totality of the of the the experience, right, as an audience member that I think you get absolutely in Una's work. Um, but that, in some ways, if you get like a really good musical, show, I'm not saying they're all like that, you know. <laughs> but uh, when you get a really good one, it yeah. can it has it's that that thing of like the transcendence and the transporting that's so brilliant, you know. So having done those three years, having the horizons broadened a little, then the decision to go and do a masters. Was that fairly immediate or was there a bit of a gap between the there two? There was a gap of a year. So I sort of fannied around Cork for a bit, uh, you know, working in shops for a while and, and you know, being a bit scared, actually. Yeah. Um, but I suppose one of the brilliant things that we did in UCC was uh, there was an internship between second and third year, which which meant that I got to go and work with Karkadurka as a performer. Amazing. Between second and third year. So that was like, it, absolutely, I can't tell you how crucial that was because it introduced me to a bunch of people who were making work in the city and to Pat and Finn and Diane and everybody at Karkadurka. And also, so that we made a, a devised piece of work as well, like, you know, with the group, it, it was, they were all kind of emerging our student performers. Um, and we had access to this like completely dilapidated old building which houses now like a TK Maxx or something you know so that's and now that feels really you know exciting that we you know we cleaned up pigeon shit in that building that now has a TK Maxx in it and people say showbiz isn't glamorous you know Um, so that was crucial and so so I so by the time I was doing my exams the following May um, my final year exams uh, Pat had cast me in the midsummer show that year right and it, I mean, it, that caused a bit of a row at home because it meant I had to forego um, a family wedding in Italy. Oh and Lord, I gave this big grandstanding spiel to my mum about like, you know, like nobody gets a job straight at a drama college where people are going to pay them. Like that's, yeah. that's not like, that's rare. So please, let, you know, let's not like row about this. Um, so I went and did it and had the absolute time of my life. Um, but then, you know, I was still in Cork by the end of it I was still in Cork and I was like okay there isn't another job sort of sure. falling into my lap I did a few things like you know um, we did a brilliant play called um, Terrorism which is by a Russian duo Prezhnyakov Brothers um, that one of my former lecturers in UCC directed and it's, it's a gas play it's really about like you know how we terrorise or bully each other it's, it, it's, it's, it's real black comedy it's gas um, and I did a few other bits and pieces as I was kind of working working in a shop and then it was coming up, you see, to Cork's Capital of Culture oh, year yes. in 2005. So yes, it was, it was of kind of this great promise. And, you know, um, of course, we'd all have jobs for 12 months, <laughs> you know, and be working nonstop because every, it was all about the culture. And, you know, that didn't quite come to pass. But I did some really fun things like um, worked with uh, Tom Creed at Playgroup and uh, his colleague, Kieran Fitzpatrick. We made a, a, a show called Older People for Beginners, which involved us going into old people homes doing a kind of like fairly um, kind of self-reflexive post-traumatic piece about two young people trying to write a show like to take into old people's homes okay. and about how we can talk about shows like King Lear because that's old people going crazy and you know there was all these kinds of you know ironic jokes and we, you know we wore um, ironic jumpers and things <laughs> and it was really funny we thought at least but I think actually the, the older people really enjoyed it and that was a very fun experience and the other I suppose formative thing that I did that year in 2005 was I decided to can my retail job 
um, I'd, I'd auditioned for a Meridian show that was happening here at the Everyman yeah. as part of the Capital Culture celebrations called Madame T. So it was an opera that, that uh, Johnny Hanrahan had adapted. And I didn't get a gig uh, like as an actor or a singer or anything like that. And then I saw that they were advertising on, remember the Crooked House website? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, where did that ever go? Facebook came along, I suppose. <laughs> but um, so they were advertising for not an assistant director, but an assistant to the director. So I was like, right, look, I had already quit my job. And I was like, I'll just, I'll just go and do this. Like, it'll be fine. So I did that and I wound up, you know, like getting, I was quite embedded in the production, I suppose. So I did things like I ended up singing in the choir as part of the show because it was important for someone from the main rehearsal to be at the choir rehearsal. So then I just joined into that. (laughs) And then I wound up learning the tango and dancing the tango as part of the show. And then the only thing that they had budget for, like because there wasn't budget for the assistant to the directors because I was in daytime rehearsals as well. But the only thing that the show had budget for was washing the laundry and the, the show was set in um in a brothel so there was lots of sort of like lacy silky bits um for all the ladies of the brothel and so that was the thing that I got paid to do of all of the things and like it was you know it was completely brilliant and um Maura O'Keefe was the producer on that and that was my first meeting with her and then a couple of years later like once I'd finished my master's I then went to work with Maura in Dublin. So that was a really good, you know, introduction. Yeah, so it's interesting that, you know, stuff is happening, you're getting involved in a whole lot of different elements, and then the decision to go back and do the Masters, then, did it feel like, what, what was the particular driver behind that? Um, partially, I suppose, feeling that, you know, with, with a three-year joint honours degree that I sort of wasn't qualified enough, or maybe that okay. was like a narrative th- to tell myself yeah. to, you know, to enable me to retreat back into the university, you yeah. know, for just the comfort blanket of another year. I mean, what it did mean was that um, I was able to focus entirely on on drama for that year, yeah. you know, um, and I, I, I think it was the better for my marks were the better for it and all that kind of stuff you know but we had a really tiny group in the Masters there was only four of us um, and, and that was a terrific year in its own right as well and I think that really sort of well there was a lot, we did a lot of uh, um, performance work and we focused very specifically on storytelling so um, I started to sing a bit like you know which I'd never really done in, in college before um, but and also it really I think honed my kind of critical writing or yeah. like those elements of of um what we'd been doing so um and it like it was like it was tough i found that like writing the thesis tough like the kind of the mental rigor yeah. involved in that you know to the extent that like i anyone who writes a phd i take my hat off like <laughs> yeah. it's a really sort of um yeah an extraordinary endeavor to undertake and i found it as say hard hard going but like well worth doing yeah. by the same token you know so then you come out the first side of the masters mm. What was the plan or what? how did things start falling into place? Because it seems that already by that stage you have a fairly broad experience of performing places, uh, working behind the scenes in places, mm. uh, heading down towards the directing route as well. So how did you start to chart those waters then after Yeah, I, I had done a couple of more shows in the meantime with Meridian uh, in my while I was doing my Masters and I had gone back to my retail job. So I was kind of doing a few different bits and pieces all, all the while. Um, And then I decided, you know, that I'd done enough sort of hiding out in Cork and I was, you know, if I really wanted to to kind of give performance this kind of a serious crack that I was at a minimum half going to have to go to Dublin. So that's what I did with like, I mean, zero plan. Like, absolutely. I was just, my cousin's living in Dublin. There was a room going in my cousin Robert's house. And I was like, Grant, just go live there and I'll figure out the rest of it when I get there. Um, 
you know and after a couple of weeks I was a bit like oh I don't know where to go or like who to ask or you know whatever and it came through the grapevine to me that um, Maura was looking for an assistant producer and okay. since we'd already um, met I was like well like there, she might pay me some money to do that so I'll, I'll do that and I think of all of the years that I spent like that was it you know it was so critical and so formative because effectively I mean I was paid for the year to, to apprentice with a really yeah. great producer um, and worked on things like you know um, a national tour of Des and Rosie um, going all over the place with them you know so that's a show that was really out there to make money and yeah. like the learning that went with that as well as working you know in small ways on um, like some marketing elements of performance corporation shows um, working on logistics for Fabulous Beast as they were at the time yeah like flights and you know like touring like make, getting the company all over Europe and things like that and then running um, with more like putting together or producing um uh, the show called the rep experiments which was you know yes of course yeah which have an incredible team right? yeah a really br- brilliant brilliant team of like so 10 performers three plays three directors yeah um you know so the casting of all of that and you know it, like, it was just re- you know so i got you know to kind of get in touch with agents and it really introduced me to a whole range of people and then i i think that what i did after that then was that was the first year that the um theater festival club festival club was in um odessa yeah and i was hostess on the door there so like you know i got to just put loads of kind of like names to faces and faces to names and all that kind of thing so and then the the i worked the next thing after that was i got to work on uh landmark's first russell carroll kelly show as company manager um you know i'm back in the day when it was like and that was 2007 which is like not back in that much of a day but enough that you know we didn't have automated ticket sales reports for example so I'd be calling Anne like with you know with the reports and again like the experience of watching those ticket sales come in and being you know um, like having seen I had the experience of like fighting for every ticket at Fringe and then this other experience of you know seeing people kind of you know like pouring in in their droves yeah to see a show directed by a man who was one of the founders of Dublin Fringe you know like it's just really interesting um, experience and then I went on then to work for Selena at Siren like when Somora was producing um, Selena's Macbeth yeah so and that was the kind of the, the whole year so I had a, kind of an extraordinary spectrum it is of incredible that it was so broad and diverse mm. and also with so many heavy hitters that you know like top level work yeah it yeah. must have been an incredible kind of baptism of fire yeah it was it was and like that's not to say I mean you know there, uh, like I made some hysterically like awful boo-boos <laughs> during the course of that year are you going to admit to any of them here no I really shouldn't <laughs> very wise because um, if more O'Keefe listen now she might kill me um, but no, I mean, she she knows about them. I mean, I think probably one of the worst things I did was when I was, you know, planning logistics, like I left left a dancer at an airport with a <laughs> flight. Like, things, you know, there was kind of a couple of epic ones like that, epic fails. Um, <laughs> but it, but like, there's so much learning in it about, you know, the attention to detail that's required, I suppose, to, to really get a big production underway and, um, and, you know, to sell a big show as well. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, it was an amazing, an amazing year. It's uh, yeah, I just, I think it's phenomenal and like it, it's such a great grounding. So, as you start to kind of then look at things, how are you feeling in terms? What what is really chiming with you? Are you finding that the performances where you're really feeling comfortable? Are you finding that the production end of things or 
the more the directing things at this stage which is which is sitting right with you or is in fact is it the mix of all of them that's working yeah like I, I had spent a year that by then like the whole of 2007 was given over to producing and yeah. by the end of that year I was like oh, I love this like I, lo- I love this because I can drive it forward like there's an you know I can be the engine a little yeah. bit um, in a way that's much more challenging as a as a freelance actor yeah. I think um, and so I had had no experience really of working as an actor um, in Dublin so I was still in, in on that level I had loads more contacts but I was still in the same position as I was 12 months previous um, and I think at that point you know I hadn't made loads of money or anything working in Dublin. It was kind of height of the boom and all that. And I moved back to Cork in January 2008. Um, and I got I got a job as company manager with Meridian. So really, I was like, I suppose I had sort of made the connection. It was like, okay, like I can get a steady income if yeah. I do this stuff. Where and you're good at it. Because not everybody is. Sure. Well, yeah. And I, I, you know, I suppose I had, yeah, I did have a a sort of a proclivity or whatever, you know, for it. So, um, so I just started, stayed going on that track and, and kind of abandoned all thoughts, um, of being a performer for about like five years, really. Like when I, when I got back to Cork, I'd been doing other, like kind of few singing gigs and I, you know, since I was in college, I'd been, you know, like I have no musical training like whatsoever, but, you know, I've been singing in bands and things like that. Um, but I, so I went back to join, I joined a wedding band in right. like 2008, but halfway through the year and I was with that band right up until I started my job, like in this post in the Everyman. Wow. Uh, so like seven, about seven years worth of gig, of gigging, like yeah. a, in a busy, busy band, like a hundred nights a year kind of gigging. Like, you That's know. a lot of gigging. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that was completely brilliant. And I, what that also meant was that, you know, in slightly more fallow periods, you know, yes. from a work point, from just a wages point of view, it meant that I had a fairly steady income there. And it kept, you know, it kept the kind of performer in yeah. me uh, fed you know like in the so in soul terms rather yes. than in like you know actually my dinner terms <laughs> yeah um so i want to talk then about the big leap to here to yeah. the everman because you were very young making that leap yeah so t- uh 24 yeah 31 31 which you know to be running a building as iconic as this that would be unusual. Yeah, I, I, well, I think I'm the youngest ever artistic director. And it was like, it sort of came as a bit of a surprise to me now, truth be, truth be told. I mean, you know, so in like, I moved back to Cork in 2008. And then, so yeah, within six years, yeah. I was here. And so I did a, like a bunch, like I was at Meridian for a couple of years. And then the company, you know, um, lost its funding and had to close. And I did like, kind of, you know, a range of like odd job, you know, marketing, publicity kind of um, work, gigging away. Um, and then there's a bit of freelance producing with some local companies here in Cork uh, and and my first directing job which I took on in 2012 and throughout all that some of that kind of freelance marketing and promotion stuff I was doing was was, he, was here in this yeah. building covering maternity leaves and things like that um, which was you know again just kind of uh, treading the balance between m- making in like independent work that was you know uh completely unfunded and uh, you know really off your own back versus you know working in a big building where you're trying to sell tickets like year round so I suppose always walking that line a little bit um and I think when Michael Barkerhaven took over here in 2012 I was was doing a bit of marketing so I got to know him then and he was also running work you know he ran workshops for actors like ostensibly kind of looking at Shakespeare texts but like 
more more than anything what he was doing was really boosting people's confidence I think and right. it was a really like lovely and he just it was free he gave of his time and people met up and we didn't do a load of them but I don't know if they were really valuable I think um, because you know for me they were also saying like I see you as a creative person as yeah. well as this person in the building who's you know um, performing this other function and um you know, I suppose whether whether they were invited or not, I had opinions often about about, <laughs> about things, and and Michael was always uh, very graciously always um, listened to to those and and heard me out, um, to the extent I suppose that when the when he announced that he was leaving, he suggested to me that I should consider applying for the job, um, you know, to which I responded, oh, I could no, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly, type thing, and I had spent um that was towards the end of twenty thirteen, and I had spent that year kind of breaking my back a little bit with um conflicted the company i was working with at the time and we'd made this show the scarlet letter which is an adaptation of hawthorne's novel and we made the we made the adaptation because we all loved the book i mean and for me another drive was that like you know i wanted to play this part i wanted to play the hester part um and it was really for me linked like you know with all of the stuff that has recently gone on in terms of the referendum and you know women's rights and kind of the absence of like Irish women's reproductive rights and like all those things um, on all of the silence and shame so like there was you know I had lots of ideas that were bound up in that particular piece of work that I really that you know that found a uh, voice in that I guess um, but we did you know like funded had just come on the scene so we did yeah. you know we did we fundraised for that and uh, i guess i i like i co-wrote the adaptation with my colleague evan our other colleague gavin directed it i performed in it and i co-produced it with another colleague frank and it took like it was a year's work you know and you're i was gigging and doing various other bits all the while to, to kind of earn a crust um but like by the time august came around i mean it was dead from it we had yeah. a cast of five and it was like it was mainly just trying to make sure that we could pay uh, everybody else to be in it you know and Tom Creed was at the Midsummer Festival at the time and he was really encouraging of the work and of us um, but the like the budget that he had was really limited so like I, I don't know we made the whole thing for about seven grand and it was like it was mental to do it but we did it but it like I had real sort of burnout I think yeah. at, at the end of it I went on to do the next stage at Dublin Theatre Festival after that which I think was real re- really restorative yeah. in lots of ways Um and I, I had come away from those few weeks thinking, right, I'm going to like, uh, so I had already, I suppose, made this very strong um, commitment to wanting to be in Cork. Right. Yeah. So this was really important to me and is still really important to me because I feel that, um, you know, smaller regional cities often hemorrhage their talent, you know, to to bigger urban centres. And I was like, you know what? I'm not, I'm going to just not going to make that choice. I could make that choice. I could sure. still make that choice. Um, but I'm not. And it, just because uh, you're making work in a smaller regional city doesn't mean it's not as good or that the talent isn't as um, uh, as good, yeah. you know. Um, so I was like, right, I'm, I'm just going to dig in here now. That's it. Like, you know, so uh, quite stubbornly. And I suppose when I came back from the next stage, it was like, oh, like I'm still really stuck on that. So... But realistically, like if I had three acting gigs in the year in Cork, that would be a lot. Like, yeah. So how do I make that work with everything else I'm doing? And in the midst of trying to, uh, you know, and I suppose knowing how much it had taken 
to get a part like the Hester part yeah. in Scarlet Letter where I literally had to like car- felt like having to carve it out of stone for myself because nobody else was going to make it for me yeah um you know I was like oh god like does it have to be that hard quite literally you know <laughs> and so in the midst of all that wrestling with what I was going to do um I got this call from Michael saying you know you should think about applying for that and I went no 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 you're I mean you're daft like a um too young B I'm a woman I, like which is an know, issue too yeah you've got to face up the you know in terms yeah. of the numbers I just didn't think I would be what they wanted yeah um and but but he said enough to make me and he you know he was really actually quite sort of strong with me and said like no 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 like listen to me now like I mean it when I say it like really think about it so I did and um by the time I'd kind of written the application and sent it in you know I had be- I became so excited by the possibility of it yeah. that I began to think actually I really could do it right and then I tanked in my first interview <laughs> I completely tanked and came out like a gibbering wreck I was so upset because what I'd done was I I prepared the kind of you know it's also a thing of like in this industry the opportunities to interview like there was I I, I met a panel of five people yeah so um that's unusual, you know, to be sitting opposite, you know, and having to sort of like, you know, make make your stand or whatever. And anyway, I made I made a total hash of it and came away really upset thinking that was it, it was done. Because I'd prepared basically the kind of stuff that was really more appropriate for the second phase okay. of interviews. Happily, they, you know, they saw past my gibbering wreckness um, in the first instance and asked me to come back for a second interview. Um, by which time I had, you know, like a really, um, a program I was really excited about, prepared that I could talk them through and give them a real sense of what it might look like if they put me in this seat. Um, And I was so, I I came away thinking, well, okay, at least I've acquitted myself in, you know, that I feel good about that, regardless of whether I get the gig or not. And like by now I'd sort of like accumulated a whole entourage of like family and friends who like had come with me like along the process, which is about two months long you know all sitting and waiting like to hear um and you know so eventually when I did get the call like it was a real you know for mates who were at college with me like it you know it did feel like a big deal yeah you know I want to touch back just for a second on that idea of burnout because I think it's an important one and I think so much of the work that gets made in Ireland uh that is kind of people subsidizing the ecosystem of theater by just you know working four or five jobs on a show um, trying to pay other people around them as yeah. best they can but kind of just sucking it up and going well okay if I have to pull 14 hour days I have to pull 14 hour days it can take a huge toll on people and particularly uh, you know for artists trying to make work if if it's too draining on you it can be really hard to pick pick yourself back up again and go and make stuff out the far it side it absolutely of can and it drives people out of the profession yeah. is what it does I think I think we've got some really sort of like or we've inherited some really p- problematic ideas about what it means to be an artist you know yeah. like um, there's this great article in I think it's the Atlantic I reference it all the time but like it basically charts the kind of historical progression of the artist through time and how the artist you know made money so you know in sort of pre-renaissance times you you know you would have been in a craft or a guild and you were a craftsperson not necessarily an artist yeah. you know and then obviously there's the, the patronage as we know which went you know through the houses of Medici and you know in Florence and all that which also happened in you know old Ireland like chieftains would have patronised poets to write and that kind of thing um, and then th- like 
through to kind of like the more romantic like 18th 19th century idea of an artist where you know you have to live in a garret and you have to be starving and mental yeah you know um which has been sort of you know really kind of like elevated as like somehow the goal that like basically your art isn't good enough unless Unless you're you're having that experience which i find like really toxic actually yeah um I don't think it's a crazy thing to want to pay your rent at the end of the week. No, it's work. really not. It's really not. And so into the 20th century, there, there came the rise of, you know, the artist as academic and, you know, like making work out of universities, I suppose. And that's more specific to maybe like visual arts practitioners or, you know, uh, writers and things like that. Through to kind of what, what this article was charting as the modern age, which was the artist as entrepreneur, like this idea yeah. of like, you know, the portfolio career and all that kind of stuff, which I think is possible and it's happening but like that it do, it sort of doesn't um allow for a burnout or it doesn't you know yeah. it, it it's hidden with the, like the narrative of burnout is hidden within all that so it looks sort of glossy and glamorous and we're sort of at pains nowadays to make it look like that but yes and curate our lives on instagram yeah, so everything looks like it's amazing yeah, all the time totally when actually you know a lot of the time we're at the edge of ourselves you yeah. know it's tricky it is tricky and I, I mean i don't know what the solution is whether we just, I mean, I don't think the solution is putting all theatre tickets up to 75 quid a head. No, uh, not that either. You know? No, so. but like there's, a, I think, probably a combination of things, which is, you know, um, placing a little bit more value on uh, ourselves as individuals, you know, and what we're prepared to do or how, how far yeah. we're prepared to take it. Like, I do think that there's, um, like, I, I'm really interested in the idea of like the artists in the community, you know, the, the kind of schemes like that where, you know, where you can pra- like you, you can kind of blend a practice that, you know, is kind of community based as well as professionally based. Yeah. And I think if there's a lot of snobbery around artists who work in those kinds of contexts Absolutely. Um, and I wish there weren't. And I'd love to see. I think that could be a real way of blending, you know, yeah. those two things Um to a, to a healthier way of life for artists, yeah. you know, for theatre artists. a bit of sustainability. Yeah. Um, so talk to me about finally getting your hands on this place then. Uh, dream come true? Um, it was once I'd given myself the chance to ha- actually have the dream. Yeah. You know, I, like I genuinely like really ha- never had any aspirations. I suppose partially because I, was, I wasn't an experienced director of theatre. Okay. Um, I thought that, you know, that that was the only way that it was possible to be an artistic director yes. of a building, which of course it's not. And, you know, we've seen that over the last maybe 10 years or so um, in this country and in other places, you know, where um, you've got people maybe with more of a producing background taking on um, those roles. And so, like, I, I'm i a kind of an evangelist, you know. Good. Um, I, I saw, and I'm, I like the theatre is my church and I evangelise for it. And so, like, w- what better place, like, to be than, you know, having a programme and going out and sort of saying to people, like, you love this, come in and see this, you know, uh, uh, like, all the time. Like, just rolling that over, over yeah. and over again, you know. Um, so it was, like, really daunting, you know, to do it. Um, and, but it helped, I guess, that I knew the building and I knew some of the people here yeah. as well. Um, and obviously had some experience of, you know, shows that may or may not have worked here from an audience point of view. Um, and I suppose one of the big things that I really wanted to see um, was to do with representation of women on the stage. So I wasn't particularly focused um, on, you know, increasing representation where writers and directors were concerned. So maybe that was just, you know, maybe this was coming out of like, having to carve that Hester roll yeah. out of stone type thing, but I was really, really focused on um, 
just getting more women on stage, more stories like that, yeah. that had more space for women and more of women's voices on stage. Um, it, you know, in so far as I can with sort of limited budgets, etc., etc. You know, um, we so we've taken some few small steps to that. I think so. You know, when making the feminist came around, it felt like I was like, oh, there's loads of other people like who were like trying to figure this stuff out too, and that was that was great. Yeah, you know, what is success for you here then is it success if you have the house absolutely full every night if is it success if you have a diverse program that all sections of the community here can come and access is it successful if you're having these high profile partnerships with other you know leading lights of theater around the country uh what when do you feel like you're getting it right um, it's all of those things really so there's a, a kind of a there is a bit of a matrix to that i suppose yeah. um fundamentally the thing that like that you know we did some work a couple of years ago on our artistic strategy and the thing for me that feels like the mission if you like um is that this building or this organization because there's there's sort of two things working right. together um would be so sort of indispensable to the kind of cultural lives of Cork citizens that you know that actually long after I'm gone from yeah. here because I won't be here you know forever um that that people really feel ownership over this. So, so for me, that's like that breaks down into a whole kind of range of things, which is like making sure that there's space for local stage schools to have their shows here, and for local amateur companies to make yeah. sure they have their shows here, as well as, as you say, then at the opposite end of the spectrum, like those kind of high-profile partnerships, like the one we're we're in with Landmark right now to um, co-produce the world premiere of Asking for It. And, and everything in between, which is, you know, having companies like yours come down with really beautiful plays, um, companies like Broken Talkers come with really, you know, uh, challenging, more avant-garde work so that we can um, expand the appetites, particularly of, of artists, you know, or our aspirant artists making yeah. work in the city, um, you know, so, so like, obviously, like, a full house is a like it's a wonderful yes. thing but from our point of view you know we have a very uh, clear kind of set of expectations of, around what any given piece of work may or may not do that we yeah. you know is based on kind of looking at the data and and, and kind of past experience um so as long as we're meeting those then that that feels like success i mean you know it's like we have 650 seats like it's an enormous auditorium yeah. you know um, so we can't expect every show to, to sell that no, number of, of seats, you know. So, um, so we try to be really clear about what those expectations are, and you know, and or or for example, another like we're hoping maybe next year now to to start programming a little bit more work for young audiences. And one of the challenges for us is that um, the ticket price, you know, needs needs yes. to be lower. And often um, the companies that are making the work make it in such a way that it's for maybe 30 or 50 people at a time. And of course, we have 650 seats. So yeah. it's trying to how do we how do we balance that? Um, and so one of the things that we try and do is like, for example, you know, we'll have we we'll put stand up comedy on that night and we'll sell the 600 tickets on Saturday yes, night and not worry about like the loss of income that morning. So like it's just trying to like build that balance and a kind of a holistic approach to programming. Then. Yeah, to- totally. And it, it also means like putting the ve- like the venue works really hard, though, because it means it's going sort of like all day long some <laughs> days. And, you know, particularly where our box office and bar and technical staff are yeah. concerned, like I know, like I put it up to those departments to really to kind of um to make that happen 
um, and of course our front of house team as well. We've got an amazing team of, of um, volunteer front of house staff as well. So like the, that, that's I suppose another I suppose uh, element to the matrix is that for a venue with 650 seats, like those are our main asset. Like we have, we get about 10% of our income comes from public subsidy. Only 10%? Yeah. That's remarkable. Yeah. So 90% of our income is generated by ticket sales here. That's phenomenal. Yeah. So it means that like we really have to have shows that sell tickets. Yeah. But, but, but we, you know, but we, but the ethos isn't kind of com- commercially minded yeah. in that sense. It's much more like a kind of a municipal or, yeah. you know, state subsidized kind of, um, you know, approach, or at least that's what we like to think. So it's about just trying to find it, as you say, a holistic way of, of um, making those two things coexist, which I think is totally like, well, we're, we're seeing it like it is possible. We're doing yeah, it, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah, it like it's that doesn't mean to say that it isn't like a challenge. You know, for example, when we had really bad weather yes. a few months ago, you know, um we lost three nights of a show that was just like, you know, after kind of watching the sales kind of being you know, not kind of setting the world on fire, but they were really starting to do that. Yeah. And then it all fell off a cliff, you know. Yeah. So that's really like it's so disappointing when that happens. But um I suppose on another level maybe it's a little bit um, like it's liberating in one way right so not to be hugely reliant on public subsidy yeah. but it means you know we have to cut our cloths then in other ways you know yeah. um, so like anything look there's there's challenges whichever way you look at it um, but it means you know it, it, I suppose it means that we're not terrified anytime there's a change of government or a change of approach yeah. at department level or, or things like that Um you know, it means we sort of stay pl- plugging away, like, you yeah. know. Again, just to come back on the idea of your commitment to being back in Cork and, you know, talking about a- an element of concern in the programming is that you're providing, uh, you know, access to uh, diverse work for the aspirant artists yes. here. That strikes me as an incredible idea that wouldn't have occurred to me that that would be a strand. But, of course, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Because, you know... There is this idea out there that if you're not in Dublin, or indeed if you're not in London or New York or LA, that you know it's you're nowhere. But there are, you know, this is like the second biggest city in the country. There's huge population here who deserve access to top quality work yeah, too. Absolutely, and there's three. I mean, there's three drama programs in the city, right. like two degree ones and one PLC, um, and they come to everything. They right. come to absolutely everything. I mean, I like they they could throw the gauntlet down. I think that you know they they see so much, and also the other thing is that like we have a nine euro student ticket price, so it's you which know, is incredible. They, like they can really really come like to things if they so choose. Um, like Cork is maybe historically more famous, arguably for um, its visual artists and its musicians. I would say. Um, but I think part of, like we've you know we've had we have had and have some amazing theatre companies making work here like Graffiti Theatre Company who were like a pioneer yeah. of work for young audiences that have been in existence I think th- like almost it's, the company is almost as old as I am now, <laughs> um, but because they you know they don't have that visibility of making work on a, a sort of a main a main stage I'm yeah. doing air quotes now main stage context you know they're in schools or they're they're working in their own yeah. space and similarly Kirkadarka who were also pioneers of like off site and site specific yeah. work are um you know work that by default can't tour as easily so it means that you know those companies have been have been here and making work so actually there's a um 
an amazing vocabulary among audiences here for like all sorts of things so yeah. i don't think it's so radical actually to to, to be bringing work, our programming work that's you know that's a little bit more challenging or a little bit more avant-garde we, we just have to be careful about like how much money we spend of doing course. that you know yeah. um but i think it is really important for for the aspirant artists to kind of to see what's out there because it's you're at such a formative time and you're you know your mind is probably never as open yeah you know um and especially but you know now that like the world has opened up beyond the kind of like a text-based experience in the theater or you know like theater that 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 where the text the written word text is the most important thing um you know that there are other possibilities for live performance beyond that i think it's you know it's really important for us for us to for our program to reflect that like it's only in small ways but like uh, insofar as we can we try to yeah you talked about trying to increase work for younger audiences you talked about trying to increase female representation on stage are there any other strands of the work that you have your site set on or any other kind of constituencies within the audience that you feel you need to bump yeah like you know well there's loads like i mean you know our stages aren't particularly racially diverse you know like um even though the the cast of asking for it is a little bit more diverse than maybe you know other shows might have been over the years here um which actually goes back to the fact that the author wrote those parts into the text in the first place you know um so i think that's something that i you know i'd love i'd like generally you know for uh, the theatre to become more inclusive on an access level for people of all kinds of abilities um, and for for representation to, to start to kind of expand uh, into those uh, spaces that are haven't been as diverse uh, as we would like. So th- like those things are definitely aspirations, but like it, it that's a, a kind of a complex web of things where, you know, you need the writers to write the parts and you need the partners to be willing to kind of like yeah. go down the road with you. But I think we're like it's out and we're talking about it now, you know, and that's I think those are shared goals yeah. as well, like across the country. So that's kind of exciting, too. Um, and also, like, I'm a bit I have to sort of put the reins on myself a little bit sometimes because you know I'm a bit like impatient and I want it all to happen like now or yesterday preferably type yes. thing um you know but it's a good there's discipline and sort of like working towards the those things as well you know so for you now where is the most joy for you is it getting back in getting your hands dirty in a rehearsal room directing a show is it curating an entire season where you go I'm really proud and pleased with how well spread that is what what's still getting you excited about the theatre um, like I will be going into the rehearsal room in the 2nd of July with the Lonesome West and insofar as it's possible to sort of switch the curatorial mind off and, and leave the desk aside for four weeks yeah. then that's hugely exciting to go and like and play and you know and um, and make decisions that you know you can there's maybe a little bit more control over that You're, you know it's kind of maybe smaller in scale um than like a program like a year's worth of program you know so there's great joy in that and seeing actors at work and seeing designers at work um and so especially since i only really get to do that about once a year there's still a huge amount of joy in that but i think probably the thing that like the kind of overriding joy is sitting in is sitting in with an audience you know and and observing or like feeling the kind of you know i'm making a hand gesture now which is like vibe you know a vibration or just feeling the energy off them as they respond to whatever is on the stage um because you know particularly with um 
like like a piece of work like asking for you know like we've been two and a bit years now trying to make that happen and so like my you know I'm very um like wedded to it or it, like it's really important to me and yeah. um you know we can see people buying tickets for it and that's really exciting and we can we've seen you know the rehearsal room taking shape and the draft taking shape and the cast and all of those things but like it's that the big deep breath when you you know see how how it's going to like sort of impact people yeah. in the room and the, you know so the hopes like my personal hopes for that are extremely high um but it's the experience of like the kind of collective gasp or the collective like peal of laughter like that i don't know that i'll ever tire of that yeah you know because that's like that's what you're there to do like you're there to get all the people in the room the audience and all the artists in the room and then it's the the crackle of whatever happens in between them that is the like I just uh, how could I possibly ever get tired of that you know especially when it's like really really good you yeah. know uh, that's fantastic um, I just wish you continued success here you're doing a phenomenal job here it, like I said it's one of my favourite theatres in the country to come to and uh, fingers crossed you keep making lots more incredible work Thanks, to do. thank you so much for coming thank on the podcast you. So there you have it, the great Julie Kelleher, such a wonderful woman and someone who's achieved so much in such a short space of time, really quite a remarkable achievement. I wish her continued success both at the Everyman and indeed around the world. And so that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of the theatrical goings on around the country at the Abbey Theatre. It's Ulysses coming back at the gate. They're about to open with the snapper Uh, at the Borgosh Energy Theatre. It's the last ship and that's followed by Flashdance at Theatre Upstairs. It's the Rose of Jericho and at the new theatre in Temple Bar it's The Harvest Smock Alley has Love a la Mode and also Walkinstown coming up from Monkey Backstage at the Pavilion Theatre it's Lovers by Freel that's the production from the Lyric on Tour at Dreyacht in Blanche they have Weighing In followed by The Words Are There at the Viking Theatre in Clontarf it's Buridan's Ass and Bewley's Cafe Theatre on Grafton Street has Molly uh, at the Project Arts Centre it's Jesse Jones Tremble Tremble featuring the brilliant Alwyn Fuere at the Everyman down in Cork, Julie's stomping ground. It's asking for it. And man, the hype around this is getting very, very real. It looks like it's going to be an absolutely phenomenal show. Make it your business to go and catch it if you can. Um, also in Waterford at the Theatre Royal coming up soon, it's Blackbird starring Anthony Brophy and Maria Guyver. Now, apart from the fact that that's one of my favourite plays of all time, they're two of my favourite actors of all time. That looks like it's going to be a cracking production. That is definitely going to be worth a trip to Waterford to catch that. Um, at West in the Town Hall in Galway, it's the early hours and also the midnight court. Uh, also on the West Coast at the Lime Tree in Limerick, Micro Disney is coming up at the Bell Table. And up north in the Lyric, we have the last few performances of Lovers by Brian Friel. We also have Borderland and then Frank Carson, Rebel Without a Paul from the brilliant Dan Gordon which has been getting rave reviews all over the place so look that is us that is episode 31 in the books we will of course be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers but in the meantime this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast for Angus Og McAnally I'm Angus Og McAnally we'll see you next week (laughs) 